Okay, good evening. How are you doing? Eight o'clock in the UK, GMT plus one. Uh, we'll be talking about that plus one later on, actually. It's very topical for tonight. Uh, welcome to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, live recorded here on YouTube. And because we're doing uh, sleep as the focus for April, we're also going out live to my Run Chat Live Facebook group, because it's a topic that doesn't only affect soft tissue therapists, which is uh, the main audience for this podcast. Um, it affects everybody. And particularly runners um, and it's something which um, I've worked with for quite a long time now uh, with regards to performance and the recovery from injury so if you are joining me from Run Chat Live from the Facebook um, then do say hi and hopefully what we're doing tonight will help you as well anyway so my name is Matt Phillips in case you're not aware and I am the creator of Run Chat Live and the host of the Sports Therapy Association podcast and we are here live um, if you do decide to join us live, then you can say comments and I can bring them up on the screen. I'm hoping some people come running into the live lounge now. Uh, but if you listen to the podcast, then that's fine as well. If time doesn't suit you, if eight o'clock UK time doesn't suit you and you've decided to listen to the podcast instead, then I thank you as well. But if you could be kind enough to leave a rating and a review, then that would be great. It's really important just because it helps us appear higher in the Google search results. Um, and it means that the fantastic guests which we bring you 96 weeks in a row now uh, will reach a larger audience which is what it's all about so um, Gary founder of the STA has just joined us in the live lounge so I can bring his comment up on the screen and Gary said evening all I'm going to be rowing my concept two for the duration of the web chat this evening other models of rower are available um, I'll give a free membership renewal to the member who gets the closest guest for total row distance there we go, Mr. Gary, can't stop giving things out for free, um, is going to be giving a free membership renewal um, to a member who gets the closest distance that he rows in his Concept2 rower this evening. Um, that's how we roll here on the Sports Therapy Session podcast. Our founders are doing exercise as he listens. So there you go. Right. So, yeah, focus um, on sleep, sleep awareness. We had an amazing episode last week. Um, with uh, Jesse Cook, um, who did a fantastic job. I think I dropped him a little bit in the deep, just saying, I'll tell you what, Jesse, you got 10 minutes to explain sleep. Bit of a nasty question, but he managed it wonderfully and with a passion, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, um, amazing educator and lots of exciting things happening. So I would recommend that you follow um, Jesse, particularly on Twitter, seems to be very active. Sleep and sports. OK, so sleep and sports as it sounds on Twitter. Lots of exciting things come up, including a new podcast. Um, and really, it's very valuable if you're interested in um, the topic of sleep. Um, and last week as well, if you did join us, then uh, you will have met also our speaker for tonight, Dr. Olivia Walsh, um, who um, managed to drop in and join us uh, last week and join Jesse. Um, and tonight we've got uh, Dr. Olivia Walsh to ourselves to talk about the topic of sleep trackers um, or wearables as some of you have asked me and emailed me Matt is a sleep tracker wearable so if it's a stupid question not a stupid question at all and that's what we're going to open up with this evening is a little bit of terminology um, if you're joining us live then say hi I'm just going to bring up now Affinity Body Works clinical soft tissue therapist also known in her spare time as Sarah Jones is here so Sarah says evening here I should really create another account don't ever change Sarah please I love reading that out it's it it tickles my me every time I see it so thanks for joining us uh, Glenn Murphy's here and action thanks Glenn another regular Claire Walker is coming as well um so great thanks for joining us people right so um, like I say, we're being streamed live to STA YouTube channel um, and also to the Runchat Live Facebook page. But if you can't join us live, then um, all this is available um, as a podcast 
just look up the Sports Therapy Association um, on your favourite podcast app um, and it'll be there, 96 episodes of free CPD. So I think we're there. Everything seems to be working. Um, so I'll bring up our guest this evening, Dr. Olivia Why, hello. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to see you. Um, again, I've already said thank you, but I'm loving your white wall. It fits in really nicely. It looks like we're kind of on either end of the lounge. I've just realised. Yeah, just <laughs> hanging out next to each other, just talking about sleep. It's great. I'm so glad. And and this is, uh, you were here last week as well, so thank you for coming back. Must have been okay last week. I'm glad. Right, so we're going to be talking about um, sleep trackers tonight, um, which is a passion of yours. Every time Jesse mentioned it last week, he was like very kind of, well, this is really Olivia's bag, but I'm just going to mention it. You know, he seemed very sheepish as if he was, um, uh, shouldn't he be keeping his mouth closed. So, but the thing which I mentioned last week, which obviously impressed a simpleton like myself, was PhD in applied uh, mathematics. Um, so I'm interested, first of all, how, how did, did that come before the interest in sleep? Or was it as, as a result of, or how did that come about? Sleep and maths. Uh, math was first. Uh, and the thing I realized about math is that if you want it to be useful this century, you have to be somewhat strategic because there's lots of fascinating math that's beautiful that will be useful in approximately the year 2500. I mean, the same way that prime numbers were very like pretty and totally useless for like thousands of years before they made up the fundamental backbone of all cybersecurity. Um, but I wanted to be able to reap the benefits of, of doing math in my lifetime. And one of the cool ways you can apply math is in mathematical biology. And the place I did my PhD uh, had a lot of amazing math biologists who specifically focused on the math of sleep and circadian rhythms. So I fell in it through that, but I've become a true obsessive. All I've got in my head at the moment is that prime numbers, everything after that was a blur. You're telling prime, <laughs> prime numbers kind of are the secret and the backbone to cybersecurity. Just briefly. Yeah. Okay. So 135, how did that happen? So prime numbers, they're numbers that sort of don't have any divisors besides themselves and one. So like five and three, prime, four, not prime. Um, but those are really, really small numbers. You can come up with prime numbers that are like 300 digits long. And if you multiply two of them together, it's really hard to factor that big number. So it's an easy operation to do. You can take two gigantic numbers, times them by each other, and get an even bigger number. But you can't start with the bigger number and figure out what two ones got multiplied by together to get it. Um, any time in our lifetimes. So it's easy one direction, hard in a different direction. And that is the essential ingredients of cybersecurity at an extremely high level. <laughs> Math teachers have changed so much since I was a little lad, I must say. You teach sometimes as well, don't you? Are you still teaching maths or calculus? Not not recently, but definitely in my life. And I, I've done a lot of like wow, getting the kids interested in math style programs. So they I... usually don't need me. Usually like like oh you're 17 and you know so much more math than me how dare you 
So we're going to, um, we mentioned a little bit off air, I did put the title as this as Sleep Trackers. And, and honestly, I've had a couple of emails from people and, and never feel embarrassed. I love, first of all, I love the fact that people are, are actually contacting me to ask these questions because it means that people are less worried these days about asking. I think that's a bit thanks to COVID because there were so many questions that came up when we were faced with a pandemic and no one knew the answers to it. It made people less embarrassed about asking for support. So a few people email me going, Matt, Sleep Trackers, is that the same as Sleep Wearables? So if it's a stupid question, but it's not at all, is it? Is there a clear line between a tr sleep tracker and a wearable? I'm going to make it right now, which is that lots of things can track your sleep, but not be a wearable. So for instance, if you put a sensor under your bed and it tracks your motion, well, you're not wearing that. It, it doesn't move when you move. Um, similarly, if you put your phone's microphone on and leave it next to you while you sleep, that could do a form of sleep tracking, but you're not wearing it. So we can go ahead and say wearables are a subset of trackers and they're things you wear. Like um, I would say EEG, uh, that's uh, portable, could be one of those, but most likely we're talking about like a, a wristwatch or a ring. Okay, makes sense. There you go. See, so it wasn't a silly question. Everyone who emailed, or the two people who emailed me about that. Um, so been around for quite a long time. I think people are quite, these days people are very aware because the big companies have got on board like Fitbit and Apple Watch and, and others. Um, but the actual technology in a maybe albeit a simpler form has been around for decades now. When did you first come aware that these things are being used? I mean, I think they go back to the 1950s in the sense of putting something that measures motion on people. And then if they're moving, saying you're awake and if you're not moving saying you're asleep and then i think in the 90s we really started to get rigorous with actigraphy which is at a high level just like things that measure if you're moving over long periods of time that you can use to figure out okay i think probably this person was sleeping here probably awake here because they're moving around a lot um and that's when some of the classic sleep algorithms uh, came into play in, in the 90s where they're really just boiling down to are you moving or not well if you're moving you're probably awake and since then there's been this whole like flourishing of commercial off-the-shelf devices that are sort of more user-friendly that do so much more than just tracking sleep um, that have uh, like extra features and, and gadgets and like the Fitbits and the Auras and the Garmin's but Man, just like putting something on a person, seeing if they're moving or not, that's been around for decades. Okay, so that's kind of easy to understand and assess that if if you, the idea is when you stop moving, you're falling asleep, but straight away, uh, there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because it might be like myself, you're just lying awake thinking, I'm not gonna be able to go to sleep. And yet the device will be saying that you're asleep. So that's, as I imagine, quite a big limitation of something which is just measuring movement. Yeah, I would say that's, the central problem with acceleration-based sleep wearables is that it's really hard to tell somebody who's awake and being really still uh, apart from somebody who's asleep and being still because they're asleep. Uh, and especially if it's one of these sort of very coarse level measures of acceleration. So it's really only registering that you're moving if you do pretty significant motion. Um, like, I'm not making significant motions when I'm lying in bed staring at the ceiling very awake. And that's where you really start to get these differences between the accuracy you can get with things that are measuring acceleration 
and the accuracy you can get with something where you've got stuff either pressed against or glued to your head actually looking at your brain waves. Uh, there's, there's a big chasm between those two. And it's one of the reasons why when you're looking at a sleep tracker, one of the biggest ways to assess how good it is is to look at your wake accuracy. How much of the real wake that you experienced did it actually say was wake versus mistaking it for sleep just because you weren't moving around? Very interesting. Okay. Um, just keeping an eye on comments, I forgot to say to you off air, if you see any interesting questions coming up, can you see the comments okay at the side? You can see them. Yeah. I can, yeah. If I, you see something you want guess. to say, Matt, like so-and-so just said a comment, I want to ask her that, then feel free. I've just seen Zoe. Oh, sorry, Zoe. Came and went. Zoe Wood, um, a spiritual physiotherapist. Thanks for joining us, Zoe. Has asked, um, hi, everyone. Very interested to hear this as very relevant to most of my patients and never really talked about. Thank you. That's great to hear. That's really good because... This, this topic is something as we went into last week i mean we're all kind of most of the people listening to this are in the business of looking after people who have come into them in pain okay and we could maybe i don't think we looked last week in great detail about this so the, the connection between pain and sleep but it's maybe we could go into that a little bit now if people are coming in pain then it would be a mistake not to go quite deeply into the quality of their sleep is that fair enough to say I would say, and, and I think uh, this is something I'm a total broken record about. Also, the regularity of their sleep. Also, even like the time of day, like uh, there's a time of day effect, I think, in in pain perception. So like, uh, yes, there are many close connections. And yes, I think it makes sense to really take a look at both the duration of their sleep, but also it's it's temporal distribution, it's regularity. And the fact is, a lot of our patients and clients have already got their hands on something on their wrist, some kind of wearable. So again, if they're coming to us and, and they're looking to us professionals to help get over this pain, and not just pain, it might be a performance related issue as well. Then um, it's, it's an, it's something we need to go down the road as I'm sure we'll talk about a bit as, as to whether they're using that trackable device or that wearable in a, in a beneficial way, or maybe it could be actually making things worse. So, yeah, I'm glad you said that, Zoe, and I hope this is the case for other people. As that client comes in now, rather than just looking at the way they're walking and saying that the 1980s, they're pronating too much, let's get that out of your head. We know that's not a thing anymore, but pick up on whether they've got like a little sleep wearable on their wrist maybe, and that should stimulate a conversation in a subjective assessment about why they're wearing it. Because they might not even tell you they've got problems with sleep. They haven't got that connection as a patient. They, they think that they've got something wrong with their Achilles and you're going to rub it better. So this is where you've got to keep your eyes open as you're going through the conversation and see what they're wearing um, and maybe start that conversation. So thanks, Zoe. Thanks for reminding me to say that. So we've moved from something which just measures when you're lying very still. I can see the limitations in that. How has technology improved then? You said kind of modern wearables, um, come close to the truth what's been kind of added maybe in chronological order what's come along which has made these a bit more beneficial in terms of producing um how much time you're awake yeah let me start with like the 1990s algorithm and an algorithm is just like a set of rules for processing something and coming in um that spits out for sleep at the end a prediction of 
how likely you were to be awake or asleep. And that prediction is, is usually a number between zero and one. Uh, so maybe 0.999 is like, okay, yeah, that person's asleep. And then 0.5, you're like, oh, this is really ambiguous. I, I don't know where this person is. And one of the very first sleep algorithms literally did the following. So it's using one of these devices. So not the Apple Watch, but sort of a research device that measures your motion in this coarse way. Basically, a lot of motion It's going to give you a number like 100, no motion, zero, all other levels of motion in between there. So like zero to 500. That's how expressive it is. And it's going to give you one of those numbers every little chunk of time. So for instance, maybe once a minute. And so you're getting a, like, I don't know if I like started uh, doing this for the next minute, I'd get quite a high number. If I like taped my arm to my desk, I'd get a low number. Um, and the, the sort of seminal sleep algorithm was basically, okay, I'm going to take a moving window of seven minutes. I'm going to take how much of that movement number or activity counts, as they were called, I got in each minute. I'm going to multiply them by a different number because maybe I want to wait the current minute most of all. And I want to wait maybe three minutes ago slightly less. And then I'm going to add all of those up. And then I'm going to multiply by a tiny number out front. And that's going to be my sleep probability. That's going to be the likelihood that I was asleep. So you can kind of think of this as like, like a moving average of your motion, but one that sort of waits right now more than it waits the few minutes before and after. Um, and so this is uh, often referred to as the Cole Kripke algorithm. It's like one of the oldest ones. And it will get like 95% of your sleep right. And it will get like 35, 40% of your wake right. So that's pretty low. 30-ish percent of your wake is not not that good. But again, maybe you didn't have that much wake over the course of the night. Maybe you were only awake for 10 minutes, in which case, okay, it only missed seven minutes. That's that's 70 percent, but that's not that's not like a huge life or death, like seven minutes wrong um, assessment of your night of sleep, though it gets stickier if somebody has a sleep disorder. That's where we are in the 90s. To be honest, we're not so much crazily beyond that um, right now. It, there was a paper that just came out in um, the journal Sleep where the Naval Health Research Center compared a bunch of different sleep trackers. And so the wake accuracy for actigraphy, I mentioned, is something like 35-40%. For Garmin devices, it was 20%. So they found they were only getting 20% of the wake right, um, which is, is kind of a bummer. Though if you, if you look at the numbers, what Garmin was doing there is they were probably being too focused on getting every single sleep minute correct and not enough on getting every minute of wake correct. So the short version is we haven't come so incredibly far since the 90s that it's like, oh, that was that was embarrassing. Some devices on the market are pretty similar to what we had a long time ago. But here are some of the things that are different and some of the ones that I think are most important for better improvement in sleep wake accuracy. We can get heart rate from a lot of devices. To be honest, I haven't seen that make the biggest improvement in telling sleep from wake, but it makes a huge improvement in telling different stages of sleep apart from each other. For instance, there's a stage of sleep called REM sleep, 
which is maybe like the dreaming stage of sleep, really different from deep sleep or N3, which often happens at the start of the night. And heart rate can really help you tell the difference between the two of those. Another thing we've added to these algorithms is time of day. So classic actigraphy, these old 90s algorithms, does not care what time it is. And you can tell that modern wearables do care what time it is because they rarely say you're sleeping in the day. Like it is very hard for them to pick up a nap. And that's because I don't think they want their users to be unhappy if they were really still and the wearable said, hey, you were taking a nap. So I think they suppress uh, daytime sleep by using time of day. So that's another piece of information that's in these algorithms. So heart rate, time of day, there's other sensors. There's electrodermal activity, there's temperature. I think wearables that are coming out are gonna start using those. But the, the one that I am kind of most excited about is actually going back to raw motion, but not doing this, like reduce all the motion down to a number between zero and 500, but rather looking at really, really high sampled acceleration data. So very, very, very subtle motions as opposed to like having to move your arm around a lot. Because in my own work and work from others in the research world, you can start to see things that look suggestive of breathing patterns and breathing rate that could help us start to tell the difference between being really still, but being awake and being asleep. So that was a really long answer. Recapping very quickly, uh, processed motion is where we started. Heart rate's been added, time of days has been added, and I think unprocessed motion, sort of very, very high density, high resolution acceleration is where we're heading with these wearable devices. That's that's really interesting to hear that not just Garmin, but using them as an example. I'm sure they they, they applaud these studies and the conclusions because it allows them to make a more accurate kind of device. But it's interesting to hear that, yeah, by going to kind of fast and furious into the technology and measuring one side of things in this case um the time you were asleep and yeah they they've lost some of the other accuracy elsewhere that's, that's fascinating and to hear that you think that maybe chucking away the, the dependency on a lot of these other kind of senses and going back to just raw motion but looking more concretely at yeah the little intricate movements and things that sounds that's very very interesting very interesting. I love your enthusiasm as well. Anything you say at the moment would sound interesting, to say the truth. And this is another reason, people, where you should be coming and joining us live. Because if you've listened to the audio, I'm sure you're probably picking up on Dr. Olivia's kind of passion and excitement as well. But being in the studio, you can't, you can't, you're missing out an awful lot as well. So thank you. It's really interesting. The um I'm thinking ahead now to the client who comes in. Depending on what they're wearing, then without kind of calling out any companies or models, but there could be a lot of difference in the accuracy of the data they're getting through in the morning when they wake up, depending on what they're wearing. Oh, yeah. And to be honest, I think like sleep wake, it's probably pretty good. Like uh, just in the sense of capturing macro properties of their night, for instance, you can have a pretty low wake accuracy, but still not be that wrong with their overall total sleep time. So long as they didn't have a huge chunk of the night that was awake. Case in point, somebody who, again, was only awake 20 minutes of the night, like you could be 70% wrong there and in your wake estimation, and you're still talking about an error less than 20 minutes. The thing though, that I think 
pretty much the whole field agrees is that if somebody is stressing out because a, a wearable said their sleep stages, so REM sleep versus deep sleep, like if they're thinking that they are doing something wrong because of the story from those, they shouldn't. The accuracy is not that good. So you're talking about an accuracy of around like 60% for a lot of the sleep stages, which is certainly better than random guessing. Uh, but it's not something to like stay up night worrying about that. For instance, you think you didn't get a lot of REM sleep last night because a lot of that could be inaccuracies in the sleep staging algorithm. Yeah, that's really important as well. And that's a conversation that once therapists are a little bit more confident, and hopefully this is helping with that confidence, then they can have that conversation if people are coming in really stressed and are blaming their lack of performance or functioning coordination on what the data said. Um, even though they actually felt okay in the morning before they looked at what their watch was telling them, that's uh, that's something which is really worth... Um, the same thing happens with kind of a lot of technical devices and stuff, doesn't it? And, and Garmin and stuff talking about your cadence and your foot strike and all these variables come up and you think you've had a pretty good run and did well and yet the machine will tell you, no, no, you didn't. Your cadence was below 180 and it's supposed to be 180. And, and you think, oh, that was a terrible run and it ruins your week and maybe you lose the race because of that. So, yeah, big conversation, which you, talk, you talked about last week as well, didn't you? Not... If you wake up and you feel like you've had a great night's sleep and you feel a bounce in your stride, then you're suggesting you should probably go more with that than what the device has told you. A hundred percent. And yeah, last time we talked about orthosomnia, which is this sort of phenomenon that's happened enough to get a name, which is that people, they look at their sleep wearable, it tells them they slept bad. They feel stressed out about that. They sleep worse. And there's a positive feedback loop that happens where it's the case that their device is messing with their sleep. And like certainly if you're like sleeping a good long chunk, waking up and feeling great, and your wearable says, oh, you got a 54 last night, go with how you feel and not the wearable. The one exception I will say is if you're chronically sleep restricted, like you know you're not getting more than four hours a night, at a certain point, you're so tired, you lose the ability to effectively engage how you feel and how you're performing. So like there, I would be a little bit more like, no, don't trust yourself. If, if you know that you're getting like four or five hours of sleep a night, like something's probably not right there. But like with that caveat out of the way, yeah, like you're, you have a sleep problem if you feel bad about your sleep, independent of what anything else is telling you. If you don't, you're probably okay. It's interesting you bring up actually that um, the, the subject of quantity, putting quality aside for the moment, because I think some of our clients, I know I've seen them, they take, oh, this is the whole problem is in society, they take pride in the fact that they don't need so many hours sleep. It's kind of seen as a medal you wear on your lapel. I get by on five hours nights of sleep. I don't need any more than that. It allows me to fit in much more runs. I can't remember which specialist it was, but they kind of said, you know, if I get somebody who comes to me saying I get by on four hours a night of sleep, I'm not, first of all, I'm not going to listen to anything that comes out of their mouth. They're going to be so delirious. <laughs> I've got to take everything they say with a pinch of salt. But it's an interesting one because I think a lot of people do wear that as, as, as a medal. And it was interesting to read that often people will quote, I think the two I've seen that are probably the most obvious is Margaret Thatcher. Um, who was a Prime Minister of Ireland, in case you're not familiar, I'm sure you are. Um, and also Ronald Reagan, they were both kind of proud in their time of getting by with just four or five hours sleep a night. 
and both of them although it's only n equals two ended up suffering from alzheimer's which you know mm -hmm. researchers have said mm, maybe it's just n equals two but it's a bit of a coincidence that two of the biggest kind of um personalities of celebrated low sleep um uh, ended up with alzheimer's um so yeah trackables though i think it was interesting that i can't remember who it was again but i listened to a podcast and the question that came up time time again is it's all very well having a wearable and a trackable and all the things it does but the big question is what are you going to do with the information it gives you how is it going to change you regardless of what it gives you what are you going to do with it and that's where you need to think do i need this wearable so what do you think the biggest at the moment the biggest advantage of wearing a wearable is what should people be wearing it for i like connecting its uh data to your subjective experiences that day um, kind of making it easier for yourself to let go of that i think it's a very natural phenomenon to be like oh if i don't sleep it's impressive in some way it's uh, like training yourself by connecting good sleep with feeling better performing better to make it easier to get more sleep because there's like there's always that sort of macho voice at least in past olivia's head that was like Ugh. I was horrible at sleep as a youth. And a lot of it was this, this assumption that like, well, I'm getting all these hours of the day. Sure, I'm, I'm basically stupefied during them and I'm making lots of mistakes that I have to fix later, but like only four hours somehow makes me more impressive than other people. And it's through going on regimens with wearables and tracking my sleep that I've just been able to put that aside like it's too undeniable right now that i'm just so much better spending that time sleeping than i am anywhere else and you can pick up on the trends better if you are seeing uh quantification if you're if you're really able to like look back and be like oh as soon as i started sleeping more things started going on the up and ups for me i will say that one thing I am just not a fan of in sleep trackers is any score that is based on the sleep staging. Because first of all, it's not accurate, probably. Like again, 60-ish percent for accuracy is what you're usually looking at for devices of this kind. Like secondly, what are you gonna do that night? Like get into bed and pull up your like comforter and be like, I'm gonna REM sleep so hard. Like you can't do that. You can't like kick yourself into REM sleep through like pure force of will and Probably your brain knows what what it wants to do, what stages it needs based on like the state you are getting into bed. And so I would say like that is not a useful thing for sleep trackers. And then the last thing, and this is where I bring in my conflict of interest, which is that I'm also CEO of a startup that's focused on body clock and circadian rhythms. Like, man, I love sleep trackers for looking at my sleep regularity. So how consistent am I in going to bed at the same time every night? Because you can really quickly visualize those um, from data collected by these kind of devices. And I think that is such a critical part of sleep health. I'm biased, but I can back it up. I got, I got personal experience and, and other research that shows that sleep regularity, which you can help train yourself through these devices, is a key component of feeling good through sleep that's good yeah that's interesting so using the wearable as a positive tangible way of seeing that if you do improve um quantity or if you can measure some kind of increase in quality then you do actually feel better for it if you can 
correlate the two together and see that there's a causation there. That's interesting. That's good. I like that. Um, there's some questions coming on through now, which is lovely. Don't forget, people, if you have got questions, then um, feel free to ask and I will see you in there. Also, if you've come in late, then you're welcome to apologise, like Leslie Campbell here says, sorry, I'm late. Last <laughs> two times was snoring. Lol. That's OK, Leslie. I'm glad you made it. I'm glad you joined us. Um, so let me just scroll back to a question here, which was related to what we were talking about. So changing. Yeah, this was talking about changing patterns by using a device. Claire Walker has said, how long on average does it take to retrain your sleep pattern? OK, over to you. Yeah, I would say days. That's, that's an unsatisfactory answer. But I do know that, you know, one day, or even like two days is for most people not going to be enough. The time scale for this phenomenon is on the order of days. Um, and I would say that, okay, what does retraining your sleep pattern mean? It's not just sort of getting into bed and being like, fall asleep now. There's a lot of environmental factors that matter. Um, so I will say that there's studies where they've taken people living in sort of normal everyday, like modern life, artificial lights in the home, um, camping um, for like a week or two weeks and looked at how their sleep changes and it changes really dramatically. Um, so one of the ways it changes is that instead of having this big distribution of chronotypes, basically some people who are really morning birds morning larks and some people who are true night owls. And it becomes a lot tighter a distribution. And in particular, the extreme night owls really go away. And the phenomenon that's happening there is that they're changing their light exposure for a couple weeks. And that's leading to this big change in their sleep patterns. So um, the, the short version of that answer I just gave would be days, uh, in my own studies, it's taken about two weeks to really see circadian effects uh, emerge. Um, but you can't just keep your environment totally the same, get in bed and start yelling your, at yourself to fall asleep. You really need to think about um, the whole package, sleep hygiene, but also explicitly your light exposure. Yeah, I think it's really tricky, isn't it? Because, I mean, I had an amazing experience and it was literally a day or two. I went camping for the first time in about 30 years I was amazed that we had a tent not only could you stand up in which never was I used to as a child um but it was big enough to fit a car in it was ridiculous it was huge it had four rooms it was just amazing <laughs> tent. yeah I know it's ridiculous I couldn't even now it's just freaks me out but I hadn't been camping for about 30 years but I am an, a night owl and I'm notoriously bad if I wake up then I have to do everything I can not for anyone to talk to me and like even last night my eldest six-year-old woke up the nightmare i got out of bed nearly fell over because i've got no coordination or correlation when i wake up i'm just zonked um, and also i'm just swearing like uh, a sailor and i somehow made it away from the window back to the door where i was supposed to be walking towards made it downstairs to him just to kind of try and be sympathetic with him downstairs going be nice be nice be nice in my mind and he starts talking to me about his dream all right <laughs> And I can't handle any noise. And I've just been woken up. He's telling me about people whispering to him and he, all he wants to do. And I'm like, just just, just lie down, lie down. I'll, I'll stay here for a while. Just lie and sleep. And I get upstairs thinking I haven't woken up too much. And then my wife starts asking me, is he OK? And I'm, I don't know what I said to her, but she didn't speak to me in the morning for about five minutes. Because I just know that if I'm woken up from that stage, I need to minimise any form of sensory input. Otherwise, I'm just going to stay away. But this camping trip, 
I woke up after a night in the tent with, and I don't know, many different factors. The temperature obviously was much colder, no electronics. Um, I didn't eat before bed because I had no fridge to get anything out of. Um, and also um, the fact, the light, as you mentioned, I woke up at like half six in the morning naturally feeling incredible. Like this is how I wish I'd managed to wake up just once in my life in all the years I've been on this earth. And that was the same for every night we were camping. I couldn't believe it. I got home and I tore all my electrical equipment out from next to my bed and thought, this is it. I'm going to try and make it as much as possible as if I was sleeping in a tent. But life gets in the way, doesn't it? And and we can find the truth sometimes by doing something like that. But life slowly creeps in and suddenly you do have to get up for work and the alarm clock's next year and your phone's next year and you've got plugs. And So I agree with you. I think we can change our sleep patterns very quickly. But I think the challenge is like you said before, is life kind of goes on is what happens when you're making other plans. Thank you, John Lennon. But And it's that, isn't it? It's making those little changes bit by bit so you can keep those changes that your body wants to make and without reverting. Um, it's it's like uh, unfortunate that it's harder for some people than others because there's massive inter-individual differences in light exposure uh, sensitivity. So a way you can measure light sensitivity is you bring people into the lab and you look at how their body produces melatonin under different lighting conditions. So melatonin is your body's signal that it's night and it goes up and it comes down again over the course of the night. Um, and you want more melatonin, it's like a tumor suppressant. It also sends a really strong signal that it's night when you have more of it, um, but light suppresses it. So light just takes a signal and it squishes it downward but there's a 50 fold difference across individuals in how much light it takes to squish their melatonin by half. For some people, honestly, it's not that different from your phone. For other people, the room lights can be on and their melatonin is still trucking. And so we really think one of the factors that can make a person be a night owl is that just a little bit of light is enough to really suppress their melatonin, make it so they don't feel tired, make it so they stay up later because they're not tired, so they get more light, so it delays their melatonin even more and creates this positive feedback loop, none of which would be a problem if all we were doing was sitting by campfires. Um, so this is just a, a way of saying that like, if you feel like you're struggling with this, maybe it's your light sensitivity. Maybe you're somebody who's getting way more thrown off by light from a phone than the person you live with, for instance. It kind of shows, and I think we touched on it last week, that if someone has is wearing a wearable, then it does open up a nice conversation. It shows they're interested in it, which is great, and it opens the door to maybe looking for some of the more lower-hanging fruits like like lights, um, exposure, both at nighttime and in the morning, um, their diet, caffeine, all the kind of things which um, somebody might not have been considering before. There was somebody who was listening last week who actually told me, I won't say their name to protect their innocence, but... They said that was amazing. I struggle with with waking up at nighttime, and and it was only after listening last week I realised that I go to sleep with my curtains open because I like the light coming through in the morning. But the trouble is with the light changing and coming through at four or five o'clock in the morning, they hadn't made that connection. But that's what's waking mm -hmm. them up. If they want to sleep longer and get that kind of eight hours, then just close your curtain and find some other way of exposing yourself in the morning gradually to light. So. Patient, people don't realise, do they, of these low-hanging fruits of how to improve their quality of sleep quite significantly just by looking at the simple things. But at least if they're wearing that wearable, it shows that they're open to that conversation. Yeah. 
Yeah, good good connection back to wearables. Excellent yeah, yeah, segue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's have another little question here. We've got um, Zoe Wood has said, let me bring this up for people who are watching it um, live. It's on the screen. Would you say breathing patterns stroke quality of breathing has an effect on quality of sleep? Good question. Would people often look at O2 saturation on their monitor and link with quality of sleep? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's also one of the bounds of what I know about. So I will say that, yeah, absolutely. Breathing uh, has an effect on quality of sleep. I mean, look at sleep apnea, right? Like that's a breathing problem that seriously disrupts your sleep. And it's these desaturations that are the hallmark of it. And I think uh, so. Yes, it does have an effect on quality of sleep. Would people often look at O2 saturation? I don't know, because if you are looking at that, like, like, are you doing it because you have apnea? In which case, like, like you probably should seek treatment for sleep apnea, which is this like medical condition. Um, and, and in terms of people who are uh, not, uh, they're not apnea patients, they don't have apnea looking at O2 saturation. There could be some, some cool stuff there, but I don't know about it. There you go, say so if that if you never if you've got a follow up to that question, obviously come back with some more. But yeah, great question. Um, that goes back. I was thinking as well what you said originally about let's look in more detail about how people are moving and the little ways they're moving, right? seeing if we can work out you know whether that connects to whether they're sleeping the kind of movements in the body. So yeah, good question. And um, that was just Leslie apologising for being late. Oh, Brian Huxley as well has said sorry for lateness. Are you impressed the way I've got people to say sorry if they come in late? That's real teacher <laughs> yes, quality, yeah, that is. So okay, Brian, just going to sit down at the back and you know what to do. Okay, just turn around for the first one. Did he one bring minute. a note? <laughs> oh, the shame of it. Um, right, okay, so moving back to wearables then. Um, so devices have improved. You've mentioned that they're looking into more kind of giving more feedback to the body, like heart rate um, and also the light as well. Some of them are measuring um, light exposure as well. Um, what do you think is the future for wearables? I mean, you've already kind of alluded to the idea that we need to kind of pull back a little bit and maybe look at other characteristics and not get so excited about some of the way paths are being led down. I mean, they're being, there's, we mentioned off air, didn't we, that there's a very exciting, I mean, it's only going to be helpful if you are near Arizona or you've got a, oh no, actually they are doing it online as well, aren't they? So anyway, Dr. <laughs> Michael Gardner, um, who you might have seen, um, he was on Quest for Sleep, I'm pretty sure here. Um, yeah, yeah. He was, wasn't he? Yeah. So he's got, if you had started following the people I recommend on Twitter, um, if you're into sleep, then um, this Saturday at the University of Arizona, um, Dr. Gardner, who's um, the director of the Sleep Health Research Program at the university, is holding a sleep wearables workshop. Um, and I've looked at the, obviously I can't go, but I think it's being put out digitally as well. Um, but mm -hmm. it made me realise how although some people might start criticizing sleep wearables thinking oh fitbit they're just in it for the money clinically there's an awful lot going on i mean this is a whole workshop designed to help people improve or clinicians help improve the use of wearables with their patients so obviously it's being taken very seriously um is it going to be is it something that's going to be more and more useful as the technology improves or do you think we're going to have to pull back a little bit oh i think definitely with the caveat that there needs to be some kind of transparency about what's going on 
under the hood for broad clinical acceptance. And what I mean by this is if I'm a corporation making Olivia watch and everyone's buying Olivia watch um, and maybe even some scientists do a validation study and they're like, oh, Olivia watch has a 95% sleep accuracy, 50% wake accuracy. So pretty standard, like pretty um, solid to good. Um, I could at Olivia watch change my algorithm so it says all wake is sleep and all sleep is wake and just totally trash performance put it out into the world and not have to tell anybody and I, this is obviously a contrived extreme example but you can imagine things on the continuum for instance a f update to the software that dramatically changes performance and changes the utility of the device as a clinical tool you don't want to suddenly start telling people that they've got a sleep disorder just because some change that happened under the hood occurred and like nobody was told about that. The only way to find out is to do another expensive sleep study that's gonna take like a year and a half to, to like make it from inception to published paper at least. So, so that's the risk with bringing these things into the clinic and starting to make diagnoses from them is that if they're black box, if the manufacturers don't have to tell us what's happening in them, then there could be wild swings in performance that hurt their ability to accurately distinguish sleep from wake or make it so that, for instance, if my algorithm, when it sees a weird sleeper, just like says, okay, this person like, I don't want to give them unreasonable numbers because this is so weird. I'm going to smooth it over so they get sort of generic, like normal night of sleep. Like these devices, if the algorithms are doing stuff like that under the hood, could make it so like they're actively obscuring the presence of sleep disorders. And all of this is to say that there has to be some level of transparency um, to make it so that clinicians can use these things in the clinic with confidence what are the I, I noticed the people i do follow are you know very high up in in well at least i see them talking a lot about it but are they do they how closely do they work with these companies they seem to be there's a lot of people on twitter who looks like they've been kind of um helping the brands develop their stuff are there barriers to it or has the we have the research the scientists managed to find a way of working with these companies and find a middle ground or is the middle ground not good enough I think uh, it depends on the kind of research you're doing. And so for instance, I've been involved with studies that have given out like thousands of Fitbits to people. Um, and, and there, they're really looking at sort of macroscopic patterns. They're, they're not trying to diagnose sleep disorders based on what the Fitbit says. They're just looking for general trends. Like maybe like how does working a night shift affect your sleep? How does uh, having disrupted sleep affect your depression? And I think in studies like that, there's a really good case to be made that like, yeah, you can absolutely use these consumer wearables because like maybe they're sort of systematically weird in some way, but they're doing that across the board where I think the there's not been as much um, penetration has been in getting these things onto people's wrists, having them go into the clinic, having a clinician look at the data from that wearable and say, oh, okay, based on this, I think XYZ is going on with you. Um, and there are definitely companies working to try and address that. But the, the thing that, at the very least, I still see as a sticking point for most of them 
is this level of openness? Is this level of, okay, like what's your model doing? Because as we start to take machine learning and statistical models into the health space, like you just gotta like, like sort of be paranoid. They, they've got a lot of moving pieces. They're kind of like these like, like clouds of, of like whiz bangs and um, knobs connected together. Just, just imagine a really complicated thing and they can have unexpected behavior. Like when I started at the very beginning of this describing ye oldie sleep algorithm where you're just taking activity counts in each minute and you're basically averaging um, and then uh, deciding if it was above or below a threshold to decide if it's sleep versus wake. A beautiful thing about that is that we understand it. We understand how it's going to respond to all the inputs we give it because we can just literally write it down on one line. This is how you decide sleep versus wake with this device. And that's not true of these other models that people are building. And as a result, if you can't concisely describe something, you can't make sure you know all of the behaviors it's going to show. And so the solution, I think, for this is something kind of like a drug facts that you get on like a, a little bottle of medicine. And this is not my idea. This was researchers at Duke, but I love it. So um, I'm going to talk about it, which is basically saying like, hey, here's here's how our model performs. Sometimes it might be uh, inaccurate. On average, it's this amount accurate. And if they change the background, if they change the way it works under the hood, having to update their their sort of drug facts equivalent, the model facts, with how the latest version of the algorithm is working so that people who are using it don't have to worry about the rug being pulled out from underneath them. Very interesting, very proactive. Yeah, it's 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 um it's something which I'm always very interested in because they always that's the problem, isn't it? What's happening on the research, what's happening on the shop floor. That's where I see sports therapists and massage therapists and anybody who's seeing regular patients could play such an important part in educating because these people are coming into you and if they're wearing it, then that's when the conversation can happen. And that's where hopefully if you listen to um what we've done so far on this um sleep awareness month, then you can start asking these questions and um, and feeding back to us, you know, what you find, because um, it is all about communication, isn't it, with the person on the street and seeing how they're using these devices, how it's helping. With that in mind, it's um, let's talk about some of the things which people are going to be walking in, the well-known kind of brands that people are walking in with. We mentioned Fitbit. There's obviously different, lots of different versions of Fitbit. What about the Ura Ring? You mentioned that briefly earlier on. That seems to be gathering quite a lot of excitement. I know um, I've seen Marco Altini, who's the, who's the data, data science advisor, um, and he seems a really nice chap on, um, on Twitter. He's answered a couple of my questions, which I felt were a bit stupid, but he answered them smiling away. But um, yeah, Ura Ring, it's, it's being regarded as, because it's got, measures lots of other things which sometimes are lacking in, in some of the other brands. So have you any experience with Ura Ring? How do you rate it? I like it. And I especially like their openness. If you go to their API, um, they actually tell you what's going into their sleep score, which is great because like if you're getting a number, like and you're deciding if you feel good or bad based on that number, like, you should know what they put into it and how much they're weighting different components of your night of sleep. Like for instance, duration versus interruptions. Um, so yeah, I, 
honestly, I, I don't off the top of my head remember what the validation studies for Aura look like in terms of wake accuracy, but I remember them being pretty good. And uh, I am pro that device. I also, uh, as an Aura owner, I do like how it's really easy to keep it on. Um, so like often I want to take these off, but Aura, I actually just let the battery die and kept wearing it because I thought it was a fashion item um, for, for a long period of time. That's, that's my non-scientist confession. I think Marco does quite a good job as far as, well, for me anyway, in terms of, like you say, the openness of talking about it and where the limitations are. Um, and people often, because he seems to be a spokesperson now on social media, they will approach him with questions. Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? And it's not black and white. His answers are, well, it depends, but you could try this, which is always lovely. If a company is working on that, well, not quite sure, but let's try this. And that's normally a, a quicker way for evolving, isn't it? Rather than just giving out blanket black and whites for everybody who asks questions. So good work, Marco. We like what you're doing so far. I think all of these, like there was a paper, wasn't it, which kind of said when it comes to the looking at the stages of sleep, none of these wearables are really able to do that. Um, and also, we're not even sure how to change our stages of sleep anyway. So even if it does tell us we're getting less of this or more than that, then it's what you do with the information. It's pretty tricky. Um, so for the moment, it seems to be um, modifying lifestyles and seeing what effect that has on the data that um, you get on your wearable. Um, cool. OK. Any more questions coming in from people here? You've got a little bit quiet in the lounge. Was it because I told Brian off for being late? Is that the problem? <laughs> so um, I want to. I'm going to try and think of a nice maths question here. So I want to take advantage of the mind that we've got sitting here tonight. Um, when it comes to people who are looking, you've explained algorithm really nicely. Um, and algorithm, sadly, has become a topical word now, probably on everyone's lips, because of Facebook algorithms, and it's all about social media, isn't it? For somebody who, like me, who ha has been kind of exposed to that as the algorithm on social media, how much does that tie into where you're talking about algorithms for wearables? Is it the same principles of kind of taking results and tweaking them to be more specific? I would say as you start to get into the health algorithm, a lot of the things that, you know, I don't work at Facebook, but like I imagine their algorithms do start to become really undesirable. Um, like, for instance like uh, updating sort of the model, like like being like, oh, okay, let's, they're like in this, let's give them more of this. Like in that case, like there's a real risk of like your accuracy at sleep and wake, changing in ways you don't expect and, and changing in ways that like could make it so that you're doing a really bad job of like uh, assessing somebody's night of sleep just because you, you kind of, uh, hooked the, the, the knobs of the, the algorithm up to something that was outside of your control. And so I, I think there is this increased interest in adaptive algorithms. I think there are ways for sleep algorithms to update themselves, but that you should be really careful that you're not um, updating in a way that dramatically changes performance. So here's an example um, of a kind of change that might dramatically affect performance. I mentioned that a lot of times algorithms give you a probability that you were asleep and it's between zero and one. And if it's close to one, it's like, oh yeah, definitely asleep. And if it's close to zero, definitely awake. And if it's in between, it's kind of ambiguous. So how do you decide if 0.7 should be sleep versus wake? Um, well, you could put 0.5 as your threshold, but that's 
that's kind of arbitrary considering that maybe like you really care more about getting every single wake um, and don't care as much about getting uh, the, the easy sleeps. And so you can move this line that you draw on whether you're sleep or wake up and down. And that really changes performance. So I mentioned that there was that study that found Garmin had a like 20% wake accuracy and a 99% sleep accuracy. They absolutely, like, I am pretty sure could have gotten wake accuracies and sleep accuracies very similar to the other wearables in that study simply by changing the threshold for what counts as sleep versus wake. Their sleep threshold was pretty low, so a lot of things were getting labeled as sleep when, okay, well, if they'd moved it up a little, their 99% sleep accuracy would have gone down, but their wake accuracy would have gone up. But if you change that threshold too much, you could probably have some people get labeled as just not sleeping at all, as having had no sleep in a night. And and so uh, there's this risk where just changing this one knob uh, especially, for instance, if this person has like, um, like a weird heart rate. Like, imagine your your sleep wake algorithm includes a heart rate component, and I don't know, maybe maybe they like worked out before going to bed, and there's still this persistent elevated heart rate. Like, maybe your algorithm would say, yeah, they were awake all night because it's it's sort of uh, focusing too much on that heart rate pattern, and the threshold is such that every minute is a is below the threshold and getting labeled as wake instead of sleep. And that that would be so frustrating for a person to be told they like basically didn't sleep at all. And it's just one number changing. It's just like one number being a little too high or a little too low. Um, which is why I don't think we wanna be as dynamic and, and fast changing as sort of the Facebook newsfeed algorithms of the world. Like you want some kind of safeguards in place. Um, to make sure that you're always hitting some baseline performance for your sleep algorithm. And there should be a way that if, if people are trying to use your algorithm in a context that's like clinical, like making diagnoses, that they trust that you're, you're ensuring that your algorithm is, is not going off the rails. Like that model facts that I mentioned, or I've got a project where literally the entire model's online. So if people want to run and test it for themselves, they can. And most people probably aren't, but at the very least, it's sort of a way of like being honest about, okay, what is this black box that you're putting data in doing? Um, and is it really living up to the promise that I'm saying it is? Very interesting. Okay, it's coming towards nine o'clock now. So what I'd like to finish off with, if possible, is what, let's imagine um, somebody is wearing a wearable and they haven't really gone into as much thought about, oh, how could I make this better for me? Or what are some of the things I could, should stop relying on it for? What would be a typical way that somebody could get more out of their wearable? Okay, how could they actually use it to benefit? Imagine that somebody's wearing it because they believe that they have got a sleep disorder. So how could they use the wearable to be more effective for that? And what are the, some of the things that people should watch out for where the wearable could be actually causing them problems? 
I'll answer the second one first, which okay. is that if a sleep score is focusing too much on sleep staging, like that could be a really easy way to introduce anxiety where it doesn't need to be because the sleep staging, like, like not something to really build your house on. It's, it's uh, neat for visualizations, but it's really not giving us um, a good assessment um, of what's going on in your brain at a, a granular level. Um, so that's if people are, uh, uh, people are getting this data saying, oh, you've spent this long in, in NREM and this long in REM and this long in... That's really, yeah. they shouldn't be concentrating too much on that. They should be, yeah, okay. Exactly. Don't sweat it. And it's like, like, go by how you feel more than by number of minutes in REM sleep from your wearable. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of how people can sort of get more out of their wearable, uh, I promised that I was going to be a brokered record on this. And I'm going to, which is look at your regularity. Really look at the consistency of when your sleep timing is happening, which can be hard to remember offhand, but easy to see in these cool visualizations that Fitbit and Aura and others do. The analogy I came up with um, for this, which is not one of the analogies I shared last time, is that timing is so critical for sleep in a way we just don't pay attention to. Um, think of if you were listening to somebody's heartbeat and you were just counting number of beats and it was a super irregular heart rate. It was like, da da, silence, da. And then the person listening like took the stethoscope back and was like, oh, everything's fine because they got 60 beats per minute. You'd be like, no, that was horrible. They've got some horrible irregular rhythm with their heart rate. Like clearly the sort of counting you were doing of just total number of beats is not a true reflection of heart health. Uh, total hours of sleep is not a true reflection of sleep health. Like you really want a consistent pattern and you should care if the rhythm is off. Even if somebody's getting eight average uh, eight hours on average a night, the regularity is really important. And wearables can be a great way to track that regularity. Very good. I like it looking at the long term. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of people fall into the idea that it's, they can get by on six hours a night during the weekday because of work and stuff, but then they can get it back on the weekend and lie in. But as far as I've seen, the research is kind of suggesting, no, once you've lost those hours, particularly if you're getting well, seven or definitely six or less during the week, you can't get it back, or at least you can't get all of it back um, on the weekend. Is that correct? Yeah, there was some study where like for people who were sleeping like five hours a night, it was better for them to sleep in on the weekend than not, but they were like in a pretty extreme state of sleep restriction. Um, if you do sleep in on the weekend, like, like, and you're not in this sort of extreme category like what it's gonna do is throw off your body clock it's gonna throw off your metabolism so there's studies showing that like your blood glucose gets messed up and it's irregular it's this sort of arrhythmia in your your bedtime that uh, has been linked to increased risk of cardiovascular events and lots of bad stuff so um like if you are desperate for sleep get sleep but don't make life choices during the week telling yourself you'll be able to make up for it on the weekend because there is a cost to that restricted sleep Monday through Friday. I think that's 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 what comes about from understanding a little bit more of what's happening during sleep, that it's not just kind of a flat line, disconnect, batteries out, recharging thing. It's actually physiological, biological processes happening to do with 
consolidation of memory and repairing both mentally and physically. There's a lot going on. I love one of the things I've quoted a few times to people I've talked to is that in some stages of REM sleep, your brain is actually 30% more active than when you're awake. There's more going on than when you're actually awake, which is showing that it's very, very far from just totally disconnecting. So once people realize that sleep is actually... I can't say it's more important part of life, but it's fundamental for life. It's actually, like you said last week, yourself or Jesse said, you know, sleep quality starts the moment you wake up. That's when if you put the hours in and the quality and then your life will be better in the moment you wake up. I think people want people realize that, that sleep is a fundamental process for improving quality of life. Then they'll get rid of this idea that, oh, if I can get eight, I will. But if not, I'll just make up for another time everything without making people catastrophize and worry too much which i think is a, a big possibility that even i felt when i was reading some books um yeah those hours really count and the reason we say eight hours a night is not because it's like a nice round number with two zeros of each other clinically it's been shown that once you go below eight definitely below seven and below six you could get quite scary about what it's been connected to then yeah you're suffering and your brain doesn't get it back just because you cram in a uh, massive kind of 10 11 hours on the on the on the weekend yeah it's a big take home so i like that idea of using a, a wearable to actually track you are getting consistency who would have thought the secret to life was consistency <laughs> what a surprise it never shows its head right um thank you so much for that dr olivia watch um it's been um, really educational i'm hoping there there will be thoughts now for people when they do see clients walking in with wearables um remember as always it's not going to come straight away don't it's not a case of saying oh that's really bad you're going to get anxious listen to your client first of all and see if they are getting anxious before telling them that they're going to get anxious because you could make them anxious just by suggesting they're going to get anxious so you've got to listen to them first of all but hopefully there's a conversation there if you do see um some people coming into you um, in pain or not functioning very well um and you can have that conversation leslie campbell um has said here uh, well, open my sceptical mind to tech tracking sleep. Thanks, Matt and Livia. Sceptical? What were you sceptical about? Please back that up, Leslie. Do you think we're just going on about nothing here, making it up? Um, the more you read into it, I mean, I read, for example, I was recommended um, Amy, Amy Bender, Dr. Amy Bender from Cerebra. She recommended Matthew Walker, the book Why We Sleep, um, which I don't know whether you read or not, but it was... Um, he says at the beginning, don't give this to a patient because you could scare them because some of the stuff he comes up with, with links to Alzheimer's and obesity and depression and mental illness and all the things he talks about could really scare someone. And I could feel as I was reading it, I'm thinking, geez, I've got like decades here of not getting eight hours a night's sleep. Is it too late for me now? Am I bound to get Alzheimer's? You know, and still inside is a little thing going, wow, you're living on borrowed time sort of thing because... If you know you're getting poor sleep, then um, it could take its toll once you get to kind of that age. But so I think it's important these conversations, who you're having them with as well, the same as everything that people will catastrophize if you start telling them too openly um, the links between sleep and poor health. Um, is that something you've come across as well? You've got to be careful who you're talking to when you're saying the links that kind of science is throwing up. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it it can be counterproductive and yet like, the particular soapbox I'm usually on is one that like sidesteps very nicely. The fear of being like, oh, like, like if you don't get enough sleep tonight, like you're ruining your life. 
um, oh, by the way, you can't force yourself to sleep. It just has to be this thing that kind of like happens in your body because that particular combination of factors can make it really stressful for somebody lying in bed at night, thinking about the statistics and, and also attempting to fall asleep at the same time. My soapbox is control your light exposure uh, because that's something you can do. Like, okay, yeah, like if you have to stay up late, like you, you need screens to like look at like Microsoft Word or something, but you can dim those. You can put on blue blocking glasses. You can turn off overhead lights. There's all these things that really are just flick a switch, push a button. And that I find very freeing because that is, even if you're not asleep, still having a positive effect on your physiology because it's continuing to send the signal to your brain that it's night and that's going to help you fall asleep the next day. It's going to help your body be confident that it's day during the next day. Um, so it's it doesn't have that, that like, and you're responsible for this thing that's kind of actually out of your like conscious control, um, which is again a plug for really being considerate about your light exposure. It literally has a chemical effect on your body. We don't think of light as a drug, but we maybe should because it's it's one we ingest through our eyes. That's really good. Yeah. And and, and like you say, it's a positive thing because it is so easy to change, whether it's not just dim lights at night, but also your exposure in the morning. And um, and especially if people are suffering from severer kind of sleep disorders, then you can start looking at them. Different types of glasses, um, whether it's kind of blocking out that blue light or getting extra exposure to the bright light in the daytime. Yeah. Great one, Olivia. Thank you so much. Um, just before I forget then, Andy Glover has said, uh, reckon you rode 10,000 metres this evening, Gary. So remember, Gary, you said when we started, whoever could guess how many metres you'd managed, then they'd be getting a free membership renewal, I think he said. So there we go. Um, if you still, we'll keep this open. Um, if you, um, I don't know how long for, maybe, Gary, keep it open for a week in case people listen to the podcast. If you want to stick a number in there, how many miles did Gary row? Um, tonight, um, then yeah, you could get a renewal for your new membership. Right, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to shut the lounge down now, but Olivia, please don't click anything or disappear so I can thank you um, personally in a second. And um, thanks, Claire. Lovely chat, says Claire. Thanks, guys. Very much appreciated. Gary Benson says great chat. Thanks, people who join us live. It's really nice in 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 for people to join live things. That's why I love. I've always done live. Um, it's it's. We live in an age where it's all recorded and pause it when you want and then come back and start it again. It's so nice to get some live interaction. So thank you, people. But if you are listening to the podcast, then uh, do. That's fine as well. I'm not judging you. I understand busy lives. But if you could leave a rating and a review, that would make all the difference. Because otherwise, this could, everything, the amazing things that Dr. Olivia Walter said tonight could disappear unless you leave a rating and a review and it shows up on Google. So um, show your appreciation that way. Right, we will be back next week continuing our sleep awareness uh, month here on the Sports Therapy Association podcast. We're going to be back with Don uh, Dr. Jonathan Charest, um, who is Director of Athlete Sleep Service at Centre for Sleep and Human Performance. Um, and that episode is going to be on sleep injury and performance. So I've heard from many people that this is the man um, who you want to listen to when it regards with regards to linking sleep with performance. So we're going to be talking about that. Obviously, a lot of people listening to podcasts work with athletes of all different levels. So next week is going to be a great one um, to hear the links between sleep with injury and performance with Dr. Jonathan Charest. That'll be, if you want to join us live, that'll be at 8 o'clock again, GMT plus one. Oh, we didn't have a chance to talk about plus one tonight, Olivia. I'll have to try again another time. Um, have a look, people, if you're interested in sleep. Have a look at um, the... 
debate that goes about whether we should just be chucking an hour on to get kind of like you know lighter in the evening and darker in the morning or does that go against everything we're kind of saying which should be lighter in the morning and darker in the evening interesting debate there between the economics which the governments kind of like shop owners say they need and then also what the sleep researchers need which is obviously the opposite so yeah interesting thing to look up between now and next week i'll be asking questions next week to see what you've decided but for now um yeah that's it thanks again to our guest uh dr olivia walsh and we'll see you next tuesday at eight o'clock you're listening to run chat live podcast putting the evidence back into running injury and performance